It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and it's, again, questions and answers. What browser just added support for pass keys? How can you recognize a totally fake cryptocurrency trading site? And has Apple finally given us the keys to encrypted data in the cloud? Steve analyzes it. All the security news next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 901, recorded Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Apple encrypts the cloud. Security Now is brought to you by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hijacking, ransomware. Plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash security now. And by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. And by ExpressVPN. Secure your family's online activity and unlock tons of new shows by visiting expressvpn.com slash security now. Take back your online privacy today. Use our link to get three extra months free with a one-year package. It's time for security now. Yay, you've been waiting all week, haven't you? Well, it's your good news. It's finally here. So is Steve Gibson from grc.com, our host, the man of the hour. Hi, Steve. Yo, Leo. Great to be with you. Episode 901. Um, and I was originally going to talk about something else. Uh, but this news hit and it was like, okay, you know, and a- actually it was th- with by far the most tweeted question that I've had in a long time about any news. And that, of course, is Apple's announcement that they're going to begin encrypting iCloud. So... Apple encrypts the cloud is today's topic, but uh, we're you know that's just what we're going to wrap with. We're going to answer a bunch of questions as we are now <laughs> poised to do for the last few weeks. What browser just added native support for pass keys, and where are they stored? What service have I recommended that suffered a major multi-day service outage? I love, by the way, I love this question format. This is great. <laughs> it works. Yeah. Yeah. How can you recognize a totally fake cryptocurrency trading site? <sighs> Which messaging platform has become cybercrime's favorite? And how would you go about monetizing desirable usernames? Mm. What's the latest TikTok legislative insanity? And is it insane? Which two major companies have been hit with class action lawsuits following security breaches? Was MetaBank's leaked data truly useless? And Apple has finally given us the keys to our encrypted data in the cloud, holding none for themselves. Or have they? Oh, boy, that's a good one. That's a great question. Can't wait to hear that. I knew, you know, you, you texted me earlier that you were going to cover this, and I told everybody yeah. on MacBreak Weekly. Yeah. This Apple just rolled this out. I just turned it on on my phone. Well, actually, I didn't because it said, before you turn it on, 
you have to get updates on all of your Apple devices, of which there are more than a dozen. So, which yep. makes I'll, sense. I'll talk right? about. I'll talk about that. You have yeah. to. You cannot have any older versions. No. They all have to know about yeah. this technology. So it's going to yep. take me. I have to go around with a lot of stuff <laughs> and update it before I can do it, including my watch. Uh, but first, let's talk uh, about our sponsor uh, of the hour, and then we'll get to the picture of the week and the meat of our conversation with Steve Gibson. Our show today brought to you by, you know this name well, Barracuda, uh, the kings of email and just in general protection for you and your office. Uh, in a recent email trends survey, uh, Barracuda found that 43% of respondents said, 43% said they'd been victims of a spear phishing attack. I think it's a hundred percent, and just the other, the other fifty-seven didn't know. That's all. I have. Have you? I guess maybe it depends on what you mean by victims. I didn't click, but I bet you know if those spear phishing uh, account uh, attacks went out against some of our employees, we might be subject. Only twenty-three percent of the uh, respondents said they had actual dedicated spear phishing protection. That means the rest of them are just counting on employees not to be fooled. That seems like a recipe for disaster. As Steve says, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> How are you keeping your email secure? Barracuda has identified 13 different types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every single day. There's phishing, yeah, but there's also conversation hijacking. There's ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Are you protected against all 13 types? Do you even know what they are? Could you name them? Email cybercrime is becoming more sophisticated attacks, uh, more difficult to prevent. We've seen that. Attacks use social engineering. They'll add urgency and fear to the message to get their victims to act without thinking. It's This is tough. I mean, who hasn't fall, almost at least fallen for some of these? And then I know I've like had my finger on the button and go, oh, wait a minute. I'm not going to click that link. Uh, social engineering attacks, not not limited to spear phishing, but including spear phishing, business email compromise, cost businesses an average of $130,000 an incident. It's not cheap to remediate. And it could be worse than just money. It could be reputational damage, right? And, and of course, they're going to use what's in the news. Uh, this, uh, when the demand for COVID-19 tests ramped up at the beginning of this year, uh, Barracuda... Researchers saw an increase in COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks, and they went up 521% between October of last year and January of this year. Uh, it makes sense, right? They're going to—they're very topical. They're not—they're—they're they're not dumb. They're very talented. These guys crafting these spear phishing emails. Uh, as public interest rise, rose in crypto, for instance, last year, um, crypto attacks went up 192 uh, percent. In the same period, October 2020 through April 2021. And, and I can go on and on and on. In fact, you just look at the headlines. You'll know what your next spear phishing attack is going to be about. In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3, received 19,369 business email compromise or account email compromise complaints. Almost 20,000 in one year. Adjusted losses, $1.8 billion. Billion. The point is, it's not enough to, you can't build a perimeter defense against email attacks. You've got to let email in, right? You can't secure it at the gateway. So, I mean, of course, I'm not saying don't have gateway security. We do. But 
and that's to protect against viruses and ransomware and you know spam and all that stuff. But your gateway is useless against spear phishing because it's targeted. It has the name of your employee in it. It has the name of the boss in it, that kind of thing. You've got to have protection at the inbox level. And this protection has to be, as one might imagine, pretty sophisticated because the, the attacks are changing by the minute. So you need AI and machine learning that's constantly updated to detect and stop the most sophisticated and therefore the most dangerous threats. Here's where you start. Because I know I don't want to overwhelm you with how bad it is. It's bad. But you can start in an easy way. Get the Barracuda Report. 13 email threats you need to know about right now. You'll see how cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated all the time. How you can build the best protection for your business, your data, and your people with Barracuda. Find out about the 13 email threats that you need to know about. How Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. The ebook is free. It's waiting for you. Just go to barracuda.com slash security now. You, you can find out lots just by going to that site. It's a really good company with some great stuff. Barracuda.com slash security now. B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A. Barracuda, your journey secured. Thank you, Barracuda, for supporting us, for doing the great work you do. We use them, recommend them. Uh, you should probably do us a favor as a listener. Go to that address. That way they know you saw it here barracuda.com slash security now. Thank you for doing that. Picture of the week time, Mr. G. So rarely does a picture, I think, really work as an analogy as well as this thing does. Um, as a coder, and you're a coder, uh, we know the danger of of as you're writing code, just like not making sure that what you're writing is correct. You there there is this sense of building a foundation, and you know you, you sort of you 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 create part of it, and then you add to it, and you you it grows. Well, you know you want the beginning of that process and all the various stages between the beginning and the end to be correct. Anyway, this, so the caption on this picture is just keep coding. We can always fix it later. And th this is this is so perfect because th th so what, what what you and I are laughing at is a there's two bricklayers I guess they started, maybe this is not they started okay well except yeah, look at not. that vertical uh, one I love yeah, that vertical yeah, one yeah, it's yeah. like so you have to you have to ask what is the story here I mean this is they kind of know. That bricks are supposed to be horizontal, <laughs> kind of, <and, laughs> kind of. But first of all, they seem to have a problem with their brick sizing. They're, you know, these are not all the same size as bricks, and so, and there's like some wedgies in there, and there's, I mean, it's just, it's a disaster. But, but the, the beauty of the picture is like way down to the bottom is a brick that's, you know, it's never going to get fixed because it was four days ago in the process of building this wall that this brick someone stuck it in vertical because well they had a gap to fill or something <laughs> eric, and they eric just... in our chat room says that's a go-to statement <laughs> 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 once you see it you can never unsee yeah. it <laughs> that's hysterical yeah so anyway i just it's a great analogy because you know you know these guys just said oh well you know what the heck just keep going and 
this is never going to get fixed. That brick down there, it will be vertical as long as that wall is standing, just like some bug that got written in the beginning. And, you know, they just said, oh, just, you know, we'll fix it later. No, bad idea. Okay. Um, A good idea was uh, covered by Ars Technica's Friday headline, which read, Passkey support rolls out to Chrome stable. Um, They said, with a huge list, this is Ars Technica, with a huge list of caveats, initial Google passkey support is here. They wrote, Google's latest blog says, quote, with the latest version of Chrome, that's 108, I have it, probably everybody does, version of Chrome, we're enabling passkeys on Windows 11, Mac OS, and Android. Um and they and and ours wrote the Google password manager on Android is ready to sync all your pass keys to the cloud. And if you can meet all the hardware requirements and find a supporting service, you can now sign in to something with a pass key. So they then in their coverage take some time explaining stuff that we all know about pass keys that we've talked about, you know, and they get most of it right in kind of a watery down sort of way. Uh, then they talk about compatibility <laughs> by writing today, pass keys essentially require a portable device, even if you're logging into a stationary PC. The expectation is that you'll use a smartphone for this, but you can also use a MacBook or iPad. The first time you set up an account on a new device, you'll need to verify that your authenticating device, your phone, is in close proximity to whatever you're signing into. This proximity check happens over Bluetooth. All the passkey people are really aggressive about pointing out that sensitive data is not transferred over Bluetooth. It's just used for a proximity check but you'll still need to deal with Bluetooth connectivity issues to get started, they say. When you're signing in to an existing account on a new device, you'll also need to pick which device you want to authenticate with, probably also your phone. If both of these devices are in the same big tech ecosystem, you'll hopefully see a nice device menu. But if not, you'll have to use a QR code. Second big issue, they said. Did everybody catch... That OS listing at the top, Google supports Windows 11 with pass keys, not Windows 10. What? Which, they write, is going to make this a tough sell. StatCounter has Windows 11 at 16% of the total Windows install base, with Windows 10 at 70%. So, if you happen to make a passkey account, you, you could only log in on newer Windows computers. Okay. So they continue. Passkeys get stored in each platform's built-in key store. So that's Keychain on iOS and Mac OS and Google Password Manager or third-party app on Android and Windows Hello on Windows 11. Some of these platforms have key syncing across devices, and some do not. So signing in on one Apple device should sync your passkeys across to other Apple devices via iCloud. And the same goes for Android via a Google account. But not Windows or Linux or Chrome OS. Syncing, they write, by the way, is your escape hatch if you lose your phone. Everything is still backed up to your Google or Apple account. Google's documentation mostly doesn't mention Chrome OS at all, 
But Google says, we're working on enabling passkeys on Chrome for iOS and Chrome OS. There's also no support for Android apps yet, but Google is also working on it, which makes me wonder, like, okay, these these a lot of these limitations seem significant and weird. Anyway, they wrap up this news of Chrome's, of Chrome's emerging support by writing, now that this is actually up and running on Chrome 108 and a supported OS, you should be able to see the passkey screen under the autofill section of a Chrome uh, of of Chrome settings. So, you know, of, of a Chrome browser settings. So you can go to Chrome colon slash slash settings slash pass keys. Put that into the address bar. And they said, next, <laughs> we'll need websites and services to actually support using a pass key instead of a password to sign in. Google account would be a good first step. Uh, Google, they said Google account support would be a good first step. Right now, you can use a passkey for two-factor authentication with Google, but you can't replace your password. And they, and they finished, everyone's go-to example of passkeys is the passkeys.io demo site, which we have a walkthrough hub of, and then they, they do that. So, you know, I've got Chrome 108, so I put Chrome colon slash slash settings slash passkeys into Chrome's address bar. And I was greeted with a little, you know, thing that said, okay, this was on Windows 10. It just said, to manage passkeys, use a newer version of Windows. Oh, God. And it's like, wow, really? I mean, that's what you're going to get on Windows 10? So so it's it presumably it's the Windows Hello, which, I mean, it's very cool that that the browser is not storing your pass keys, that the browser manages this process, but but it's in the substrate. It's it's in Windows itself where the pass keys are stored. That seems like a way, a much better idea than having them in the browser. But, wow, (laughs) you're not letting people with Windows 10 have it? Good luck with that. So, you know, 70% of the world won't be able to use it. Um, you know, these feel like arbitrary limitations, you know, lack of syncing among competing platforms and devices. Uh, it feels like the attempt to, to create walled gardens. Um, it feels to me as though pass keys, the way this is going, pass keys like passwords may also become the domain of our existing password managers we know that any password manager that has a pulse has got to be racing as fast as possible to getting support of pass keys up and going and of course they will provide cross-client synchronization and you know none of this sorry you, you can't use it on windows 10 nonsense so you know we can hope that that's coming we still have the chicken and egg problem, of course, of getting it to actually work and then having places where you can use it to sign in. But, you know, you and I, Leo, are old enough to remember when people thought that the web would never happen because it's like, <laughs> well, you know, there's why is anyone going to put a web page up when there's only for? five people <laughs> yeah. who are using the Internet? I've got Gopher. I don't need a website. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. OK, so while we're talking about synchronization, 
Uh, I thought I should mention that my favorite cloud synchronization platform, Sync.com, had something happen to it. The problem first surfaced last Wednesday. Apparently, after a scheduled maintenance somehow went wrong, and things didn't appear to be fully restored until just yesterday. Uh, I utterly depend upon Sync.com, and the outage had me revisiting the wisdom of that dependency. Uh, You know, I'm not a typical user since I also run a pair of NAS boxes, you know, network-attached storage boxes, at each of my two locations. And as we know, there are many other syncing alternatives. Um, Reading between the lines of Sync's frequent online status updates, you know, through these slowly passing days, you sort of got the sense that this was causing a major problem for their customers. You know, there was a lot of like, we really understand how much you need this back. And believe us, we're working on this as hard as we can. Yet they never really told us what was going on. Anyway, uh, I came away. First of all, I thought it was my problem. I didn't immediately, I didn't even know that there was like a status log page until I dug in. So one of the things that I discovered, I know that a lot of our listeners are now sync.com users as, as probably as a consequence of me having said, you know, yeah, it's, it's been years and I love it. I'm still using it. Anyway, what I discovered was that the client, the, the desktop clients do not update themselves or if they do, mine weren't like they got stuck or something. Anyway, the world, there the sync.com world has gone to 2.1.7. What am I saying? 2.1.4. Sorry, don't go crazy. 2.1.4. I had to manually get that and run the that that you know, the latest version in order to bring my clients current. They were, you know, I've had sync for years and and like they were really old. So everything seems to be like working really well now that I actually have clients who are written in this century. Um, the good news is when you run it, it just it seamlessly installs itself and like removes the old one, puts in the new one, gets us all set up and, and going. So I just wanted to say, yep, if you, if you were affected by this sync.com update, I feel for you. I was too. They, you know, they were saying, oh, some of our users are experiencing problems. Yeah, really? Uh, okay. I would love to hear, for example, if there are sync.com listeners of this podcast who had no problems at all for the last week. That would be interesting to me because maybe it was just some people. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, by the way, you use, you mentioned sync thing. Yes. And of late, since sync thing is open source and completely local, I feel like, I don't know if I need a cloud because I have everything on every computer. And yep. then I was thinking, well, one advantage of the cloud is it's always on. So you use an S as I do, a Synology NAS. You could put sync thing on your Synology NAS. So I'm basically treating my Synology NAS as the canonical copy of all that stuff. Yep. And it's pretty yep. fast. I, I use sync thing to update source code. I know that's one of the things you do is so that you can work at yep. Lori's and at, at the office. Um, so it's pretty fast. I will I will finish a project, close or you know close a window, go over my other computer, and it's almost always there by then. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I should have. Um, I have sync thing on both of my NASs, both both the Drobo yeah. and and the Synology. Uh, Synology. Um, I use sync thing to synchronize some directories between them. And sync thing is what we use with Lori's fleet of laptops, which she has out to her clients to keep them all smart. synchronized. So they all have the so, same stuff on them. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it it is it's, absolutely a it's win. free. It's uh, open source. It works. It has uh, it does nat traversal. Um, you know, I just, yeah. I just, I love it. It's really, really good. In fact, it's really made me rethink how I back stuff up since I have a copy of everything everywhere. Yep. You know, without being in the cloud at all. Yep. Okay. So I titled this piece MetaBank Reboot because that might literally be what happened this past weekend. We've been, you know, recently following the drama with Australia's latest private medical insurer, MetaBank. Uh, uh, that's the one that exposed a huge number of a huge, well, a huge number of its current and past customer data. Uh, 9.7 million clients got exfiltrated on the dark web, and then it got released in, in into the public when they refused to pay. Well, on Friday, the Sydney Australian, you know, Morning Herald had an interesting bit of news. <laughs> Their coverage began. Private insurer MetaBank's app, stores, contact center, and IT systems will all go dark this weekend as it overhauls its cybersecurity following the nation's worst data breach in corporate history. They said from 8.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Friday, uh, I'm sorry, p.m., 8.30 p.m., end of the day, in Australia on Friday, PM, uh, e- Eastern Australia, uh, they said Australia's largest health insurer will shut down its IT systems, followed by retail store and customer contact center closures on Saturday to, quote, further strengthen systems and enhance security protections, unquote, <laughs> was the official line from MetaBank. They said the company expects normal activity to resume by Sunday at the latest. They also said Microsoft IT security experts from the Asia-Pacific region will travel to MetaBank's Melbourne headquarters to assist with the operation. And then I kind of quipped to myself, I guess Microsoft is going to show them where the update button is located on their server. Uh, and they said this was said to have been planned over several weeks and will be MetaBank's first shutdown of such scale. Well, yeah, you can imagine. This is a like... For a massive private insurer to shut down everything. So in other words, you know, shut down, update software and firmware and everything else, then turn everything back on again. So the the Herald finished by saying the overhaul is part of a series of maintenance strategies termed Operation Safeguard. So, right, they gave this a big banner as part of this. Established after the personal information, they said, of up to 11, I'm sorry, 10, of up to 10 million current and former MetaBank customers was breached in a cyber attack. The data was released on the dark web when MetaBank refused to pay a 15 million, we never had numbers before, a $15 million ransom demand by the hackers who police have said were based in Russia. The company said the damaging cyber attack will cost the firm at least $35 million in initial recovery costs, though that is likely to grow as law firms and regulators circle. 
A MetaBank spokesperson said although there had been no further suspicious activity detected inside its system since October, the insurer was carrying out further maintenance to strengthen its online security. Now, okay, if we could read between those lines, what might be happening is a complete, wide-scale, coordinated reinstallation of system software. I mean, not just an update. As we've noted before, and Leo, you and I have talked about the, the, the problem after something has been compromised is in a complex system, you can never really be certain that something isn't still hiding somewhere. So, you know, imagine you're in their shoes and that the, there was, and we don't know, right, what the forensics examination actually found. It might have left them horrified or terrified, you know, and feeling that they had no choice other than to just wash everything clean and reinstall. And boy, you know, if so, what a nightmare. Um, uh, oh, and, and they did say <laughs> since the, since the hack, MetaBank has bolstered monitoring, added detection and forensics capability across its system and scaled up analytical support via specialist third parties. Right. So they brought, you know, a bunch of people in um, and they said it also recently introduced two factor authentication. Ah, imagine that. Where, where access is granted only after providing a code sent to one's email or SMS. Oh, okay, so not very good two-factor authentication, but, you know, better than none. Anyway, so uh, uh, being completely down and offline for as many as two days sure does sound like a major sweep cleaning of all mission-critical systems. And, you know, they probably had no choice. Um, it was P.T. Barnum who is credited with saying there's a sucker born every minute. I was reminded of that when I came across this bit of news about a cybercrime group that's been named Cryptos Labs. The cybercrime research group known as Group IB, who we talk about from time to time, identified a new cybercrime operation, which they named Cryptos Labs. Okay, get this. Since 2018, so four years, this Cryptos Labs group has operated a network of more than 300 scam websites posing as fintech, you know, financial technology, and cryptocurrency trading platforms. Group IB says the group used search engine ads and social media posts to trick French-speaking users across Europe into investing more than 480 million euros. Okay, so nearly half a billion euros in these scam websites by leading them to believe that they would get to trade in stocks and crypto assets. But researchers say that once users put money into their accounts, their, you know, bogus accounts, the crooks either asked for more, you know, get as much as you can, right? Or ignored their customers before shutting down platforms and moving to a new domain. Group IB said it named this group Cryptos Labs after the kit they used to automate the deployment 
of fake trading portals. Right. Since we're going to be doing this a lot, <laughs> let's create a kit that makes it real quick to set up a new fake trading portal because, you know, we're not going to be there long. We're going to have to do it again soon. Okay. It typically, these, these portals typically mimicked 40 different popular banking, fintech, and crypto brands. So, you know, these guys were pretending to be Coinbase and set up one fake cloned Coinbase site after another. People, you know, had heard of Coinbase. Their friends were talking about it. Uh, then they encountered an advertisement in a search engine or in social media. And they thought, hey, I just got paid. Now's the time. They didn't really know what Coinbase's domain name was. So they just clicked on the advertisement and went to, you know, coinbases.org. And since everything looked quite official, they never thought that it might be an illegitimate ad and site. People would transfer money in, and at some point, once enough had or someone wanted their money back, the fake domain would be shut down and another would be set up in its place using this crypto slab tool that just, you know, <laughs> just spits out these fake uh, uh, platforms. So this is not the internet that term that 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 Tim Berners-Lee envisioned back in 1989 when he originated the concept of an internet full of interlinked HTML documents that anyone could create and publish on their own. Uh, it's not as if crime hadn't existed before. It's just flowed into a, this new medium. So that's going to happen. Um, two interesting pieces of news about Telegram. First, malware on Telegram. The Russian security firm Positive Technologies published a report on Telegram's budding cybercrime ecosystem. According to the company's scans, Telegram has slowly replaced hacking forums and is currently being used for advertising a wide spectrum of hacking services and malware. The sale of remote access Trojans, corporate network account credentials, and cash-out services are among some of the most popular topics on, on Telegram now. Okay, so there's one tidbit, but get a load of this one. Telegram, which now we know is generally becoming the favorite hangout of the crime underworld, has decided to further expand their subscriber base by allowing users to sign up without needing one of those pesky SIM cards to anchor their identities. Telegram wrote, Today starts a new era of privacy. You can have a Telegram account without a SIM card and log in using blockchain-powered anonymous numbers available on the Fragment platform. Okay, so what? I thought, what's Fragment? So I followed a link, https colon slash slash fragment.com. And I was told, oops, this service is not available in the United States. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder why not. Mm -hmm. So I thought that Wikipedia might know about Fragment, and perhaps it does. But the word Fragment is so common 
that I wasn't able to find it there among all of the other fragments. Googling turned up an abbreviated reference that was more tease than anything else. Google said, buy and sell usernames. Mm. Secure your name with blockchain Mm. in an ecosystem of 700 plus million users and assign it as a link for your personal account, dot, dot, dot. And that's where the little summary cut off on Google search. I thought, buy and sell usernames? What? Mm. Now, I know that Kevin Rose might be willing to sell you an icon of a zombie, but what's <laughs> what's fragment? So I dug in some more, and I found some news about fragment over at Crypto.News, where their coverage had the headline, Telegram now allows users to buy and sell usernames via auction. And then it goes on to explain. Telegram releases new feature, transforms usernames into digital assets. And it says, popular cloud-based instant messaging app Telegram has just launched a new feature to allow users to buy and sell short, recognizable, you know, at sign usernames for personal accounts, public groups, and channels. Telegram has commenced an auction for the best usernames on Fragment, a free collectible trading platform. With this new feature, Telegram usernames have become digital assets that can be secured and sold between parties. According to the innovative platform's unveiling note, ownership of the collectible usernames is secured in the immutable ledger of TON. (laughs) T-O-N. TON. And it goes on. A fast and scalable blockchain network, which... No one's ever heard of before. Interestingly, the new feature allows owners to add multiple username aliases to their personal accounts, group, or channel. Also, each collectible name can be accessed with its at username on Telegram or outside Telegram using links such as username.t.me and t.me slash username. To acquire usernames on Telegram, buyers visit Fragment. Search for their desired, but not unless you're in the U.S. I guess for whatever reason, you can't have a Fragment in the U.S. Uh, But here, you know, a VPN might be your friend. Search for their desired username and click on auction if that username is still available. So, Okay, Telegram is like tied in with Fragment somehow, and now you you have to buy your user your Telegram username on the blockchain. So then it says buyers will then be redirected to a page which shows the highest bid along with the bid setup and minimum bid. Okay, so earlier this said that Ton was an immutable ledger. Apparently, it's also a currency. I went over to coinmarketcap.com slash currencies slash toncoin. And I learned that a ton 
has a current value of $2.10 U.S. And it was fluctuating as I was there at that page. Couldn't make up its mind between $2.10 and $2.11. Uh, it's also, uh, it's got a 24-hour trading volume of $44 million. $44 million, yeah, $628,950. That was yesterday, 24-hour cycle. And I saw that there was a TON.org. So I went over there, and I discovered that TON stands for the Open Network, T-O-N. And from the TON homepage, we learned that, quote, TON is a decentralized layer one blockchain designed by Telegram to oh, on. Uh huh. So the, the loop closes. Designed by Telegram to onboard billions of users, they hope. It boasts ultra fast transactions tiny fees, easy-to-use apps, and is environmentally friendly. Okay, so let's get this straight. Telegram noticed that they had a lot of users and a popular platform. So they decided that they wanted to monetize the ownership of Telegram usernames. They wanted to create a marketplace which would allow Telegram usernames to be bought and sold. So they created TON, their own cryptocurrency, anchored it with their own blockchain. They then established an auctioning system, which uses the TON as its exchange currency to allow their users to bid for, purchase, and sell Telegram usernames. The rest of the coverage of this, the first part of which I already shared, tells us how this is going. Under the heading, Massive instant adoption of new feature, millions of tons earned in username sales. We have less than this is the, this is the the reporting of this. Less than six hours after the launch, thousands of usernames featuring international brands and celebrity accounts have been put up for sale. Still on auction are at Nike. At King, at eSport, while others such as at Auto, at Aviva, at FIFA, etc., have been sold for as much as nine hundred thousand ton. Oh, now we don't know what the ton was worth when it sold, but the ton is now two dollars and ten cents. So that's what one point eight million dollars thereabouts. Judging by data on the Fragment platform, millions of tons, you might say a ton of tons, have been earned by Telegram users from the sales of their short usernames. So user, users who were on Telegram early got in, got a short name. Those are desirable. They're now able to cash in on their short username by selling them for tons and then liquidating tons for cash. There's still more to be made, as there are still lots of usernames currently on auction, the, the report says. An example is the popular shoe brand Nike, which has over 300,000 ton bid for it at the moment. 
Telegram is affording its users full ownership of their usernames, and they are embracing the idea. So think about that. Um, there's no pr trademark protection, I guess. So anybody could buy Nike on Telegram who is willing to pay enough. And that's got to make Nike a little nervous, right? Because Telegram, you know, it is a, a happening place right now. So the, I actually think it's more complicated because I don't think they actually own Ton. Uh, Telegram, I love Telegram, by the way. And, and you know, you can you can look at what you just described in, in as you did, kind askance, of. Askance. Askance. But also, if you're trying to solve this issue of, and this is an issue, it's an issue with Signal, having to tie your account to an actual phone number. Yeah. You'd need to do some sort of. I think blockchain is actually, this might be one good application of blockchain, some sort of decentralized authentication system. My yep. short name is Leo Laporte, so, you know, I own that. But I didn't buy it with Ton. I just always have had it. Right. So I, I, when you started talking about this, I said, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Telegram have its own crypto? And they did. They started something called the Gram, which the in 2018, which the SEC. That's got a good name. I Graham like was that. a great name. Graham. SEC halted yeah. it because they were doing an ICO. Remember when that was the big thing, the initial coin offerings? And they right. hadn't registered the ICO. So the SEC halted it. So uh, Telegram abandoned TON, which stands for the Open Network. And it's open source. So, so developers have kept it going. According to uh. The Verge, uh, Pavel Dorov, the owner of Telegram, said he supported the project a year ago saying, I'm proud of the technology we created is alive and evolving. Um, so it is cool. a third-party effort. And I, I agree. Anytime I hear crypto, I go, okay, what's... And especially if you're selling usernames. You know, what's, <laughs> you know, this is a, you know... But if you think about it, if you wanted to replace phone numbers, you need some sort of unique fingerprint, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You could do what Threema does and, you know, meet in person and do it. Uh, but there's some sort of, Threema generates a, 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 basically a private and public keychain. Correct. Key Correct. Correct. But how do you get your key out there is the problem. So this is an interesting solution. Um, I wish Signal would do something that didn't require uh, a phone number. Because I think that's a, yeah. that, you know, it's a problem. And it, it definitely is a privacy concern, right? Because yeah. you've got to have something that is, you know, uh, anchored to a SIM. Plus, plus signal, uh, my, any signal app I run is attached to a one phone. I can't put it on another phone without. Right. D, D, you're, all, D, you're only able to have it like, you're, you're able to sync a desktop, but not another phone. Exactly. And, right. and with Telegram, I can. I have Telegram everywhere. So, nice. you know, different strokes. I agree. There's, you know. Potential for misuse, obviously. It's water time for me. <laughs> oh, have some water. Okay. I'm having coffee in my Santa mug, so you have some. Uh, oh, very isn't, nice. Isn't that cute? And you have some water while I talk about our fine sponsor for this segment. It's actually good timing because you know who it is? Bitwarden. Love the Bitwarden. I've been talking about them a lot lately. Somebody called me on the radio show on Sunday and said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm your age, Leo. <laughs> And I'm trying to figure out how to uh, protect everything I have and yet still make it available if I should pass away suddenly to my to my heirs and executor. And I said, Bitwarden. And he said, well, what you, how to explain that? I said, well, Bitwarden has an emergency contact, emergency access contact that you can set up. You're put, first of all, put everything in Bitwarden. 
that's just it's just sensible. It uses that strong public key crypto Steve is always talking about. Uh, and I use it for my, I have passport images in there, driver's license, social, because it's 100% secure, trust no one, only you have the key, a crypto vault. And it's not just for passwords, although it's the best password manager out there, because it's open source. So you know exact, everything, by the way, is open source. Even the the plugins for the browsers, everything is open source. So I really, I really like that about that. They have rolled out pass keys, passwordless login, for uh, the Web Vault, which is really cool. You can authenticate to the Bitwarden Web Vault using your Bitwarden app. Single sign-on instead of your master password. That should reassure people who are worried about remembering their master password. And it is as secure, right? Uh, you have Organization Vault and Login Flow updates. Let me give you a couple of these. Let me. I should just say right up front, Bitwarden is the only open source Completely cross-platform, works everywhere. Password manager, you can use at home, at work, you can use on the go, and it's trusted by millions. The basic personal Bitwarden is free forever. I asked him, I said, well, we had another password manager. They started charging. Uh, he said, no, no, it's open source. We can't charge. It's free forever. We've never designed the, the business side of this based on ever charging you for the personal vault. Now, I pay for some premium features, 10 bucks a year, because I want to support them. Uh, but they do have organizational features. They have enterprise and teams and family vaults. Uh, some organization functions now have been moved to improve the web, web vault UI. Uh, to accommodate new login options, the login process has been separated into two screens. So you'll have skim updates, SCIM, triggered events, will now log in from skim instead of unknown. This, you know what? It's so great that they put this in the ad. They know they're talking to the Steve Gibson crowd. So they know that, I mean, I wouldn't put this in an ad uh, anywhere else. But for you, you need to know skim triggered events will now log in from skim instead of unknown. That's good. And the skim API key will now be obfuscated by default. Just little features like this. Uh, I think this must be from their um, updates page. Generate usernames and passwords from iOS app extension. Oh, I love this. I was just talking to the Fastmail people, and I said, I love it that I can use Bitwarden to create usernames with a Fastmail account. And they said, yeah, we love it, too. <laughs> uh, so you can get an iOS app extension. It's uh, in the share menu while using apps like browsers. That's cool because that's a problem on mobile. You don't have the browser extensions capability, but it's in the share app. So you can on the fly generate usernames and passwords from the iOS app extension. They've got a nice new theme, which you will love. The solarized dark theme uh, has been brought to mobile. They've optimized performance. Uh, Bitwarden's improved web vault load times and experience for the accounts with access to thousands of vault items. I don't use the web vault that much. I use the apps. Uh, I have an app on Mac. I have an app on Linux, an app on Windows. I have browser extensions. But if you use the web vault, which is actually a good thing, because that can you can use that anywhere. Uh, you'll notice it's loading a lot faster. Um, Bitwarden has also added query parameters and group filters for Google Workspace. Okay. <laughs> if you need it, you know. I guess what that means. Bitwarden is also a must for your business. If you are not yet using a password manager in business, you know your employees are writing passwords down and putting them in a little crumpled note in their drawer under their, you know, their desk blotter, maybe been a post-it on the side of the screen. This is not password safe. This is not security. 
Uh, get a, a great password manager they won't mind using. It's fully customizable. You can adapt it to your business needs, and it's very affordable. The Teams organization option is $3 a month per user. And by the way, they use their personal vault. It starts with you set up their personal vault, and then they join the organization. Uh, so the users, they're going to get security in their whole life now all of a sudden. It's just really great. Enterprise organization plan is $5 a month per user. They let you share data privately between coworkers across departments, the entire company. It's a much better way to share passwords than writing it down and handing it or sending it via email or a text. So you start with your basic free account, free forever, unlimited number of passwords, upgrade anytime to the premium account. Like I said, less than a buck a month. There's a family plan, six users, premium features, 333 a month. For once, the whole family gets that. I am, look, you, you by now, if you listen to the show, you know you should be using password managers. I'm just saying... You should use the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, at work, and is trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. It's Bitwarden. You can get a free trial of Teams or Enterprise right now. Or, of course, start for free across all devices forever as an individual user. Bitwarden.com slash twit. This is the one. Uh, uh, just... That's all I can say. It works. It's beautiful. The extensions work beautifully. I just use it for everything now. Bitwarden.com slash twit. We thank him so much for uh, supporting security now. I know Steve doesn't use Bitwarden. We'll get him someday. Yep. But I think he yep. would agree. Better to use a password manager than not. Absolutely. No question. Yep. So I just I wanted to mention, because this is in the news, in the in the technology that the TikTok banning has continued. Uh, Texas has now joined the ranks. And I was going to say that Texas was the latest, but that was yesterday. <laughs> so who knows what's happened since then? Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has banned the use of TikTok on the devices of state employees and in doing so becomes the fourth happens to be Republican led state to ban TikTok on employee devices. Uh, that follows Maryland, South Carolina, and South Dakota. Remember that last week it was South Dakota that I noted was first with their governor, uh, Christy Nome saying that she hoped other states would be following suit. I guess her wish is coming true. Greg Abbott also ordered state agencies, uh, I, this was interesting, to come up with plans to govern the use of TikTok on state employees' personal devices not owned by yeah, the state. Good luck. Can't so do that. just, yikes! That's just performative. You can't do that. Yeah, um, he wrote in a letter to state agency leaders that there are quote <laughs> growing threats posed by TikTok to the state's sensitive information. Quote TikTok harvests vast amounts of data from its users' devices, including when, where, and how they conduct internet activity, and offers this trove of personally sensitive information to the Chinese government. Okay, but wait, there's more. Indiana's attorney general brought a pair of lawsuits against TikTok, accusing the company of deceiving users by claiming that their data was protected from the Chinese government and for exposing Indiana children to adult content. The lawsuits claim that the Chinese-based social media giant has deceived and harmed Indiana residents, 
Indiana's first lawsuit alleges TikTok has marketed its video sharing platform as safe for teens, even though its algorithm, quote, serves up abundant content, unquote, depicting drugs, sexual content and other inappropriate themes. The second lawsuit asserts that TikTok has deceived consumers by suggesting their personal information is protected from the Chinese government and the Communist Party. Uh, Okay, so uh, the attorney general said in a statement, the TikTok app is a malicious and menacing threat unleashed on unsuspecting Indiana consumers by a Chinese company that knows full well the harms it inflicts on users. With this pair of lawsuits, we hope to force TikTok to stop its false, deceptive, and misleading practices which violate Indiana law. So the Attorney General is asking for emergency injunctive relief against the company and is seeking monetary penalties for every time TikTok violated Indiana's Deceptive Consumer Sales Act. Wow. Um, for How do you worth, violate a sales act if it's free? Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I, w- I was wondering if maybe there was something I had missed. So uh, I have it in the show notes. I'm not going to drag our listeners through it. But Kaspersky has a very, a very useful, factual, piece-by-piece walkthrough. And the upshot is there is... No smoking gun here. There is there's nothing that TikTok is doing that any of the other social media platforms, you know, most notably Facebook being the largest and here in the U.S. Uh, is it also doing um, to, to get I, I thought, OK, what's on the other side of this? You know, how about a balanced look? So I found some coverage that NPR offered from less than a month ago about the FBI's raising of concerns, which apparently is what started all of this, over what TikTok might be capable of doing. And what's interesting is the quotes from FBI Director Christopher Wray during a uh, Homeland Security Committee meeting. So NPR's story says the FBI alleges TikTok poses national security concerns. Right. Okay. So, okay. That's a concern. So NPR says the head of the FBI says the bureau has national security concerns and that they even quoted that about the U S operations of TikTok, warning that the Chinese government could potentially use the popular video sharing app to influence American users or control their devices. Gee, like what? Facebook, like Twitter, like everything, right? Anyway, sorry. FBI Director Christopher Wray told a House Homeland Security Committee hearing about worldwide threats on Tuesday. This was the middle of last year. It was like the 17th, I think, of November. That the FBI has, quote, a number of concerns, unquote, just days after Republican lawmakers introduced a bill that would ban the app nationwide. How do you do that? Okay. Anyway, Ray said, I mean, this is sounding like, right, some other country we talk about somewhere else. Ray said, quote, they include 
the, the concerns, that is, include the possibility, possibility that the Chinese government could use it to control data collection on millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, which could be used for influence operations if they so chose, or to control software on millions of devices, which gives it an opportunity to potentially technically compromise personal devices, unquote. And then NPR reminds us, TikTok, which hit 1 billion monthly active users in September 2021, is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. Chinese national security laws can compel foreign and domestic firms operating within the country to share their data with the government upon request. And there are concerns about China's ruling Communist Party using this broad authority to gather sensitive intellectual property, proprietary commercial secrets, and personal data. Blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, uh, concerns. And based on concerns and China and communism, what we see, to my reading, is a bunch of grandstanding by governors and attorneys general who want to make a big, a big deal about this because it's owned by a Chinese company. Uh, we've seen misbehavior on the part of our domestic firms who are looking at things that they shouldn't. There, there was some uh, BuzzFeed news had some audio because I spent some time digging into this, wondering what the heck uh, there was some audio. The BuzzFeed news found of some TikTok employees clearly looking at the data of some TikTok users, much like Facebook has been caught looking at their own users and, and Twitter has been, has been, was caught doing the same. So anyway, to me, this looks like a bunch of nonsense. Um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, it is, I would be surprised if we end up with legislation banning TikTok. Did uh, Kaspersky uh, go into what information TikTok knows about you? I mean, because that's, I guess, the fundamental question. There's, there's, yes. two, there's two parts to this. A, a is TikTok giving information. Let's assume the Chinese government has a pipeline into ByteDance. I mean, that's a big assumption, but let's assume they do. Is TikTok gathering, what kind of information is it gathering from my phone that it's sending to the Chinese government? That's problem number one. And then problem number two is people say, well, you know, they could use the algorithm to propagandize us, you know, to convince us of something, which is legit, although the yeah. Chinese government is not unhappy to use t Twitter and Facebook and <laughs> YouTube <laughs> right. to they do that as TikTok. well. They don't really have to have some other way to do it. But uh, what did Kaspersky say about it's it's is it any so different he, so from he, any so other app on the on the on the phone? No. Kaspersky directly addresses the question of privacy concerns. They wrote, one of the most vi viral aspects of TikTok has been privacy concerns with questions like, what data does TikTok collect? And does TikTok steal your information regularly circulating online? They wrote, like many other social networking platforms, such as Facebook, TikTok collects a lot of information about its users. This includes every TikTok video watched and for how long. The entire contents of every message sent through the app, since messages are not encrypted. The user's country location, internet address, and type of device being used. And 
with the user's permission, TikTok also captures its user's exact location rather than just their you know, their IP address, the their phone's contacts and other social network connections. But you have to, to give them gra- that. because I, To build a graph. It's always right? asking for my contacts, and I always say no. And uh, I, okay. I think I, I'm assuming that Apple blocks it if I don't say yes. I mean, they... That they're not sneakily underhanded. Oh, I bet it. Apple would. Yeah. And and finally, their age, phone number, and payment information. Yeah. Again, if if you say like yes, if you, provide if you allow it. it, unless you say yes. you're 98 and uh, you live in Muncie, Indiana, which you could. Yeah. Yeah. So, Casper says this information can be used to assemble a detailed profile for advertisement targeting by understanding who its users are who their friends and family are, what they like and find entertaining, and what they have to say up to their friends. To use the app, users grant access to their microphone and camera. If they create videos, the app captures close-ups of their face. And by the way, again, you have to do that only if you're going to use it to create videos. I don't. I right. use it, and most people don't. They use it to look to, at to, videos. To watch. And every yes. time it says you want the camera access i say no you can't no i don't want right. you to have that so that again that's so something said, you turn on right so they said potentially this provides biometric data which could be used in conjunction with other images which exist online tiktok also uses technical measures to encode its activity this means that some of what it does is hidden from external researchers which all the apps do. TikTok says this is to disrupt hackers and other malicious actors. There's been extensive media coverage of TikTok privacy concerns. However, yeah, think how mad we'd mo- be if TikTok was sending all that information in the clear. <laughs> you know, uh, that's right. not good either. <laughs> the way the way all of our web pages used right. to be once. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Kaspersky Kaspersky said, however. Most social media platforms worldwide collect, use, analyze, and ultimately profit from users' personal data. TikTok argues that it collects less data than platforms such as Facebook or Google since it does not track user activity across devices. So, again, to me, this is all just, you know, the FBI saying, well, we have concerns because maybe, you know, quote, an opportunity to potentially technically compromise personal devices. Right. Because you loaded an app. All apps have that opportunity to potentially technically put, talk, compromise personal devices. Anyway, to me, this is protectionism, right? It's xenophobia and protectionism and an opportunity for so far. It's all been Republican uh political people it's to say it's to say yeah the the commies are going to get our kids yeah. okay and while we're on the subject of nonsense uh filed 2 days after last passes november 30th disclosure password management company lastpass has been hit with a class action lawsuit after experiencing two data breaches in the past three months, which we've talked about. Um, in fact, it was, a t- it was a title of our podcast a couple weeks ago. The plaintiff in this case, Debt Cleanse Group Legal Services, LLC, 
filed the class action complaint against LastPass USLP on December 2nd in a Massachusetts federal court alleging negligence and breach of contract. The Chicago-based debt relief firm said it used LastPass to manage its passwords. However, it says LastPass was negligent in its duties, evidenced by the fact that it has experienced two data breaches in the past three months. The class action lawsuit alleges that LastPass was negligent with data security, stating that LastPass used ineffective data security measures to protect its customers' information. The lawsuit states, quote, There is a strong probability that entire batches of stolen information have been dumped on the black market or are yet to be dumped on the black market, meaning plaintiff and class members may be at an increased risk of fraud and identity theft for many years into the future, unquote. <laughs> so debt cleanse responded to news of the breach by changing all of its employees' passwords for accounts that used LastPass, which took considerable resources, it said. It seeks to represent all LastPass users whose information was ac- was accessed in the breach. Well, that's a, that's a very small number. Uh, it seeks certification of the class action, damages, fees, costs, and a jury trial. So, okay. The geniuses over at Debt Cleanse freaked out and totally unnecessarily changed all of their passwords for everything. They noticed that LastPass made an announcement of a secondary breach following on from the first one. But they somehow failed to heed the statement, which was also right there both times, that no user information or passwords were at any time at risk or exposed to either of those as a consequence of either of those two breaches. Now, Leo, I know you and I feel quite similarly about class action lawsuits. You know, from time to time, I'm awarded, you know, something like <laughs> 92, 92 cents <laughs> from, from something I purchased once that faded too quickly if it was left out in the sun or whatever. You know, somewhere, some lawyers made some money. Yeah, that's the really indivi- it. The, yeah. the individuals in the class on whose behalf the action was taken netted 52 cents. You know, the only, whatever. the other, there is one secondary value to class action lawsuits. Companies still have to pay that money. And it's, it certainly has sometimes a salubrious effect on the company, uh, you know, maybe stopping them from doing that again, if you know what I yeah. mean. So there is that. Well, and unfortunately, um, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what a trial would look like, like because this is technical stuff. I mean, did, you know, I mean, it's I mean, you would like it just to be dismissed when when under uh, deposition, last past techie says nothing that happened could have possibly compromised anyone's passwords. You know, yeah, and how do you here. prove that to a judge and jury who are not technically oh. sophisticated? Oh. They bring in you, somebody like you, to say, well, I'm an expert, and in my judgment, it's safe. Yeah. I mean, what else are they going to do? And just, yep. you know. 
You've, you used to do that, didn't you, testify? I did. I did. And when I tried to explain to a judge who literally had, I will never forget this, to his right was a green oxygen tank. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and he had the nasal cannula yeah. up his nose hey, and, and a mask in case he needed a little extra hit. Holy you cow. Know, after, I mean, this is who was, you know, judging this. And it went the wrong way. And I thought, okay, I'm done here. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. is a, this is dumb. Um, okay. But we're not done. A, a tiny piece of Rackspace's overall cloud hosting business, hosting Microsoft Exchange email services, was hit 11 days ago by ransomware. Things have not been going well for them ever since. An article published yesterday in IT World Canada summed things up and offered some interesting perspective on the cloud industry overall. Here's what IT World Canada wrote. They said, on December 2nd, Rackspace experienced an outage for its hosted exchange environment. The company blamed, quote, a security incident. Unfortunately, first mistake was they didn't say what it was. A status update issued by the company noted, we proactively shut down the environment to avoid any further issues while we continue work to restore service. Okay, now that really stretches the phrase, putting a good face on the problem. Uh, you know, what, they were too embarrassed? To, you know, I guess. Uh, they should have just said, we got hit with ransomware right from the start. Because like that happens now, unfortunately. Anyway, back to what I, IT World Canada said. They said, one week later, the outage continues. And wow. the company has... Yes. This and, is like that Medi, Medi story. Wow. And the, the company has confirmed that it is due to a ransomware attack. Rackspace has not indicated how much data might be lost, whether it will pay the ransom, or when the managed exchange service will resume. This is the only information from the section of the website dealing with the press. However, in an announcement on its investors page, the company notes that the hosted exchange business accounts for less than 1% of the company's revenue, which, by the way, is a hefty $3 billion per year. And on the page, they reinsure investors that the company has cyber insurance. And <laughs> I guess they're going to be needing it. We'll get to that in a minute. But the but but uh, World IT said, but the attempt to reassure investors may not be working. In an article on December 10th, so that would be last Sunday, investment blog Market Watch criticized the company for being frustratingly closed-mouthed about the incident and noted that the company's stock had declined. The article notes, quote, since the incident came to light, Rackspace shares have tumbled by a third. This is a relatively small part of the company's business, only about $30 million a year in revenue, right, against $3 billion in total. So, yeah, that's 1%. But the bad blood that Rackspace is generating will leave a lasting stain, unquote. The stinging critique of the company's communication is significant, but another quote from the article raises an issue that could extend beyond Rackspace to the entire cloud industry. The writer notes, quote, quote, while I remain a big believer in cloud computing, 
The Rackspace attack is an urgent reminder of the risks in relying on cloud for mission-critical applications if your provider isn't keeping up with software patches and paying attention to security risks, unquote. So, the use of cloud computing, even for mission-critical applications, has grown rapidly for years. But that growth has accelerated in the past year and is predicted to further accelerate in the next 24 months. And, you know, when we had Paul and Mary Jo on Windows Weekly, they were often talking about how Microsoft is like, that's like, Microsoft doesn't really care about desktop anymore, right? They just, it's all Azure and, and we know that AWS is a massive thing for Amazon. So sure enough. And it's funny because I so clearly recall the looks I received from the IT guys who attended DigiCert's customer advisory board meeting six years ago that I was also invited to. I made some offhand comment about the rack of gear I had over at level three, which brought all discussion to a halt. I said, what? (laughs) And one of them replied apparently for the entire group, nobody does hardware anymore. Oh, well, I do. You know, I like hardware with lots of little blinky lights. But anyway, uh, this piece ends, senior management has bought into the cloud in a big way. But could investor nervousness from the Rackspace outage have an impact on attitudes in the boardroom? When a service that gives you 1% of your revenue leads to a 30% drop in your market share, cloud proponents may, to quote Ricky Ricardo, says the article, have some splaining to do. And that was just the first shoe to drop. The second shoe was, yes, Rackspace is now facing not one, not two, but at least three class action lawsuits. Reports are that Rackspace will need to defend themselves in so far at least three different class action lawsuits related to this recent ransomware attack from which they're still recovering and may never be able to fully recover from. The attack left countless companies. Unfortunately, it was tons of small and medium-sized businesses that had all outsourced their email to Exchange Server hosted by Rackspace, and they just got wiped. So uh, it's not clear that it's coming back. Um, in an interview last week, Rackspace, Rackspace suggested they may not be able to recover all their customers' data which they referred to as legacy data. The company also appears to have given up on hosting exchange email servers in its cloud, yeah, and said it was migrating all its existing customers to Microsoft 365. Right, give it to Microsoft, which, according to documents that Rackspace filed with the SEC, will cost the company $30 million, right? Because that's that 1% of its revenue. But who cares? It's certainly not worth the headache I imagine that hosting Exchange Server was more of a means to an end for Rackspace, you know, a way of establishing a relationship with an enterprise and then over time probably moving more of their non-email business into the cloud. You know, that didn't work out so well. Okay. The trend appears to be, 
what we're seeing broadly is everyone is getting very tired of the consequences of these apparently never-ending attacks. Governments are going on the offensive, saying that they're no longer going to be waiting to be attacked. Uh, You know, they're going to go proactive. Other governments, yes, other governments are calling their own employees criminally negligent and bringing them up on criminal charges. I don't know if that's fair, but... Right. And the class action ambulance chasers now only take a day or two to file their lawsuits. Why is all this happening all of a sudden? Well, we know because criminal organizations, apparently some with state level sponsorship and protection, have realized that the cryptocurrency boom, coupled with the presence of exchanges to local fiat currencies, provides them with a means of being anonymously paid. That provided the motivation. Clever hackers provided the means. And the final piece, endless opportunity, was readily supplied by the industry's historically lax cybersecurity. So today, everyone is furious, besides themselves pointing fingers and suing. But who's still never being held to account? By a perversion inherent in the system we've built, the suppliers of the buggy, brittle, and breakable systems are never to blame. I would say stay tuned. That's going to be next. Juries are made up, after all, of end users, and they're not going to be sympathetic after everything this industry has been putting them through lately. Oh, and one last piece. Speaking of losing patience... Another country goes on the offensive. On December 11th, it was reported that Japan, kind of, you know, quiet, peaceful Japan, intends to establish a legal framework that will allow strengthening of defense measures in cyberspace, including the ability to attack preemptively. The (laughs) Japanese government intends to change the rules so that it can start tracking potential attackers and breaking into systems, the attacker systems, as soon as there's a potential threat. (laughs) Current regulations make it extremely difficult to apply such measures unless there's an emergency situation that requires the mobilization of defense forces after a military attack. The plan is reflected in a proposal to amend the national security strategy that has just been submitted to the governing coalition. The draft amendment is expected to be approved by the cabinet before the end of this month. So we're clearly seeing a changing of attitudes across the board. Wow, indeed, my friend. Okay, get this, Leo. The following was sent to me via Twitter DM. And I'm not sure that this individual would want his name published, so I'm not sharing it. But he's the Australian cybersecurity person who was tasked with finding and downloading the Metabank data from the dark web for analysis. He sent the following. He said, hi, Steve. I just wanted to drop you a line about the Metabank data. You mentioned in Security Now 900 that you didn't know what use the data would be if it wasn't formatted properly. I'd like to offer one way it could be useful in the wrong hands. 
I work in cybersecurity for a law enforcement government department in Australia, and I was tasked with finding and downloading the MetaBank and Optus data. I absolutely agree. The data held within the extracted data was not formatted and was of limited use in its raw format. He says, parens, all CSV files with different structures, presumably depending upon the database it was extracted from, close parens. He said, it's true that the data is of limited use as the medical information about the patients was all in code format, which meant nothing, <coughs> excuse me, without the application to match the code to the treatment the patient received. However, my job was to search through the data to see what law enforcement officers' details were leaked. Can you imagine how bad it would be if an individual used their government-issued email address, which has their law enforcement division within the domain of the email address, to sign up with MetaBank? Suddenly, you would be able to match a name and home address of a person and verify it was a person working for the law enforcement division thanks to their email address. In the wrong hands, I'm sorry, it says, in the hands of the wrong people, such as criminal gangs, this information could put these law enforcement officers in serious danger. Sadly, data of this nature was leaked, and our organization now has to help protect these individuals. I'm sure you've already considered this scenario with leaked data. Really, any leaked data could be used this way. But considering the high-profile nature of this leak, we're having to take it very seriously. Thank you for such a wonderful podcast. And thank you for the very interesting note from the field. Uh, I'm, you know, it's abundantly clear that this podcast has aggregated quite an amazing group of listeners. I am continually humbled and flattered by the people who take the time to listen to these ramblings every week. So thank you all. Um, Paul Jolly wrote, I know you've spoken of UTF-8 in past episodes, but was left, but was left asking myself, what could possibly be the legitimate purpose of some characters after I encountered, and then he, he has a U plus uh, 200B, so that's a Unicode character, he said recently. He said, I appreciate English isn't the only language used in the world, so I understand why this extended character set is useful, but, as previously described on the podcast, can also see how it can be abused typo squatting and domain names, for example, by using characters that look like their ASCII equivalents. Getting back to my recent experience, he said, I received an email where the sender name would not sort alphabetically in my email client. I didn't think much of it at first, but then decided to investigate. It turns out that they had inserted a zero-width space character. Wow. <laughs> wow before the first letter of their name, making it appear at the top of my sorted list. That's very sophisticated. Holy cow. The three bytes could be seen in a hex editor as E2, hex 80, and then hex 8B, but would not visibly appear in Notepad. 
He said, I've never encountered this kind of white space before and thought it would be worth mentioning because I expect something like this will only be used for mischief. Try it yourself by renaming a folder in Windows and putting this special character at the beginning to make your folder appear at the top of a sorted list without any visible white space. Or paste it in Notepad a few times and see the file size increase when you save the file, but there's nothing to select or highlight on the screen. The world doesn't need this. Mm. So, anyway, Mm. another lesson here is that for every useful thing we create, there are clever people who will subvert that use into abuse. Yep. Um, uh, oh, <clears throat> um, uh, a Spinrite note. Spinrite is currently at alpha release 5 with many further improvements already implemented for its next alpha release. Everything is going quite well. Thanks to a truly gratifying level of engagement, we now have exactly 500, when I looked this morning, registered users in GitLab. We've been uncovering mysteries around the edges that uh, I've been working to solve and also things that I didn't anticipate. And I should also mention that the, the people testing are also solving these mysteries as well. For example, in 6.1, it's possible to select a drive from the command line by its model number. But Western Digital's model numbers contain spaces. And spaces are used as a delimiter to separate command line entities. So the answer is simple, right? Allow tokens to be quoted to have their contents parsed literally. When I wrote the command line parser, I forgot to add support for quoting literals. So that's an example of something that needs to get fixed. Someone booted Spinrite from a CD and it didn't notify them that their request for logging to the CD could not be honored. So it's, you know, those sorts of things. They're things I want to take the time to get correct now so that I don't have to correct them later. And we do have a couple of mysteries. One guy who has two HP all-in-one PCs, um, if he warm boots from Windows 10 into Spinrite, Spinrite locks up as soon as it starts running, you know, trying to actually run on the drive. But if he cold boots the machine, everything works fine. Okay, now we might say, okay, so don't warm boot. And that <laughs> might be the fight. You know, you know, yeah, there you go. <laughs> d- doctor, it hurts every time I raise my arm like this. Uh, well, don't, don't raise, raise your, your arm, arm like, like that. that, you silly boy. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that might be all that, you know, I'm, we, we may end up saying, Okay, you're going to have to cold boot, but it could be a symptom of something more important. So I found one of those machines on eBay for forty-seven dollars. Oh God, and it, I can't believe it! And it's you. in my it's in my car's <laughs> trunk right now. <laughs> wow! I'll figure out what's going on, and I'll answer I'll answer the question uh, that's best expressed using one of my favorite Spinrite development abbreviations, which now comes up frequently. The abbreviation is WTF. <laughs> There's a lot of that. I've been doing a radio yep. show for 19 years. It's basically filled with that. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I have one piece of miscellany to share, and then we'll take our last break. The Zima board, fanless single board computer that I stumbled upon and told everyone here about, has apparently been a big hit. 
I keep seeing kind of casual offhand mentions of it in the postings among those who are testing Spinrite and also in Twitter messages. Okay, so given how long it takes to obtain one after ordering it from Hong Kong and the fact that shipping is not free, I was surprised and delighted to learn a few hours ago that Amazon has all of them in stock and available for astonishing same-day arrival, not even next day, today, uh, at least in my location. So as a Prime subscriber, the cost is $10 more than ordering the Zima board directly from its source, but there's no shipping cost. So it's $129 versus $119, and you can have it today. Uh, so anyway, I know that not having everyone – not that not everyone bothers being a prime subscriber. Uh, but for what it's worth, it's on Amazon. So I just wanted to share that bit of happy news. Let's take our last break. I'm going to sip some water and then we're going to talk about Apple's big announcements of, of encryption improvements. Uh, our show today is brought to you by express VPN. We talk all the time about VPNs. I think by now you certainly know what a VPN could do for you. So really the only question is which VPN to use. And uh, I am very clear in my mind why I use ExpressVPN. Let me go through this for you just to kind of give you some sense uh, of why I've chosen VPN from ExpressVPN. So first of all, Steve's always said this. You should never use a VPN that does any logging of any kind. You know, they shouldn't have a record of your visit. They shouldn't have any records of what you've been doing on the VPN. That's true privacy protection. See, the problem is with a VPN, the, the reasons you use a VPN to protect yourself from spying by your Internet service provider or from being attacked in a coffee shop or eliminate geographic restrictions, those kinds of things. All that privacy and security stuff, you're just really just kicking the can down the road. The VPN provider, the place you emerge onto the public internet, potentially could be as bad as the as the hacker in the coffee shop or or the ISPs listening to. So, a free VPN, for instance, is not worth the money you're paying for. It's really a bad idea because those people are incented to spy on you, to make money on you some other way. What you really want is a VPN where they charge a reasonable amount. Express VPNs about seven bucks a month. They use that money to provide many servers all over the world so you've got great geographic access they rotate their ip addresses keep them fresh so that people aren't blocking you because well that ip address we know where that comes from and most importantly they put their efforts to giving you lots of bandwidth so you don't feel slowed down and keeping your privacy secure there was a great article on bleeping computer I actually was thrilled to read it and we and of course we trust lawrence abrams the creator of bleeping computer he talked a little bit about how express vpn works and it was very impressive they use a custom debian distro which wipes itself daily so every reboot every morning they reboot and it wipes everything off the drive completely but that's and for many that would be well that's good that's enough but no but what about that during that day is there anything logged well they also created this truster server technology which runs in ram and is sandboxed so when you press that big button on your on your phone or your router or your computer to turn on express vpn and it makes the connection to a server you can make it near you or anywhere in the world when it makes that connection it spins up at that time your your version of the trusted server you and only you are using that so there's no cross-population. It's sandboxed. And when you're done and you close the VPN, it's gone. 
and it doesn't leave a trace. And by the way, they have regular third-party audits to verify that their privacy policy is exactly what they do. The the uh, auditor uh, verified that trusted server does what it uh, says it does. All of that. So it's absolutely true. But there's another way I know it's true. Because from time to time, there are countries, unlike ours, where authorities will come and seize the servers. Uh, without a warrant, without a knock, they'll just come and take them. No chance to wipe them. They just take them. This happened in Turkey. You can read the news reports. ExpressVPN, they barged in, take the servers. They're trying to track somebody down. What did they find? Nothing. There was nothing on the servers. And this has happened many times. So we know ExpressVPN does that. A unique IP address, fresh IP address that is never attached to you or your identity. Uh, it It is secure. It is done right. I just, I honestly think that there, you know, if you do the research, you'll love ExpressVPN. You'll understand why it's the one I recommend. So secure your online activity. Secure, maybe even more importantly, your family's online activity. They now sell, ExpressVPN sells routers with ExpressVPN built in. Or you can add it to, they have a list of routers you can add it to, the software to, so that it's running on your router so your whole family is protected expressvpn.com slash security now when you sign up for a year you get three months free that's our little offer to you to get you to use that address expressvpn.com slash security now that brings it down below seven bucks a month don't use a free a free vpn provider use expressvpn it's the only one i use expressvpn.com slash security now they spell it out that's the other reason I like them. They use vowels. E-X-P-R-E-S-S. Express VPN. VPN spelled VPN, by the way. Dot com slash security now. I won't, I, won't, I won't insult you by telling you how to spell security now. Uh, use it. Enjoy it. Feel secure. And your family will like it because they can unlock shows in all over the world, which is a very... Want to watch a little, a little extra anime? Just uh, go to uh, Netflix uh, Japan. It's all there for you. And you can go to fragments.com in the U.S. There you go. And that's right. You can't use it in the U.S. unless you're not in the U.S. That's right. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. being a little sneaky. (laughs) Sneaky Pete, you. All right. I love love when you're talking about ExpressVPN and you disconnect the VPN and it's It's gone. It's out of RAM. (laughs) (laughs) Complete with sound effects. All right. I really, so this was huge news last Wednesday. Uh, after the show, when Apple announced, yes, we're going to turn on end-to-end encryption in the cloud, uh, I just got it. iOS 16.2, everybody did. Uh, Mac OS had an update. You can turn on advanced data protection, and it includes cloud backups. But I knew I should not I should not assume, unless I listen to Steve and find out what he has to say about this. Okay, so last Wednesday, Apple posted the news, which generated the most feedback, as I said, the top of the show of anything that's happened recently so i knew we needed to address that today before that i was planning to talk about the technology behind a clever new generic bypass of web application firewalls okay nerdy but cool uh don't worry we're going to get to that next week today it's apple time so apple's headline reads apple advances user security with powerful new data protections the subhead which introduces three new terms, reads iMessage contact key verification, security keys for Apple ID, 
and advanced data protection for iCloud provide users with important new tools to protect their most sensitive data and communications. Okay, so we have three new things. Apple explains that iMessage contact key verification allows users to verify they're communicating only with whom they intend. We'll see what that means in a minute. Then there's security keys for Apple ID, where users have the choice to require a physical security key to sign into their Apple ID account. Okay, so that's going to be very cool. And advanced data protection for iCloud, uh, which Apple explains users will will be able uh, to obtain what Apple says is end-to-end encryption to provide Apple's highest level of cloud data security where users will have the choice to enhance the protection of important iCloud data, including iCloud backup, photos, notes, and more. Okay, now, before we go any further, I should note that that uh, this just became available, Leo. What was said in Apple's announcement was that it was available for beta now and would be available for non-beta by the end of the year. Yeah. One week later. <laughs> Less if you're than a not, week. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Okay. So, so, but, but that's only the, it's only the iCloud backup. The other two are early 2023 rollout globally and iCloud uh, encryption also. The, 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 the so-called uh, uh, advanced data protection for iCloud, that's globally in 2023, as far as I know, it's only in the U.S. for now. I'm sure there are all sorts of issues of rolling it out globally, so I understand. Yeah. That. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, um, let's look at each of those three security improvements. Uh, the good news is that most of the information is available about the thing that people are most excited about, uh, which is, you know, that not even Apple will be able to get in type of true user encryption of user data stored in the cloud. Um, but because that's where the most information is, I'm going to save that for the last. The bad news is that neither of the other two security improvements is explained anywhere that I've been able to find in much detail. But at this point, maybe there's not much detail to be had. Of their iMessage contact key verification, Apple only said... They said conversations between users who have enabled iMessage contact key verification receive automatic alerts if an exceptionally advanced adversary, such as a state-sponsored attacker, were ever to succeed in breaching cloud servers and inserting their own device to eavesdrop on these encrypted communications. And for even higher security, iMessage contact key verification, which I think is where it gets its name, users can compare a contact verification code in person, on FaceTime, or through another secure call. Okay, and that's all we know, presumably until it's rolled out early next year. They do provide a photo showing a little emergency triangle icon underneath which is written, an unrecognized device may have been added to, and then whatever the account's name is, you know, Steve, Jenny, whatever, account. And then they have a, a clearly clickable in blue on their in their screenshot, options, dot, dot, dot. But we don't know what one's options might be. Um, okay, so 
this idea of a foreign device being added to an account covers one of the two theoretical ways that we know iMessage can be subverted. Since iMessage conversations are broadcast to all of an account's registered and logged on devices, if an adversary were to somehow get their own additional device added to a user's account, that additional device would automatically be privy to all of the attacked account's messaging. So this seems like a useful feature. Somehow, Apple has has arranged to be able to assure that even the that in the event of that happening, this aspect of some sort of integrity checking won't be fooled, and that message would appear, informing you that an unknown device was was now sharing your account. Um, but. Since Apple handles all key management for its users, the iMessage attack we've always wondered and worried about is law enforcement serving Apple with a wiretap subpoena, which would compel Apple to surreptitiously add an additional key into an iMessage conversation. Since iMessage can already handle multi-party messaging, adding a hidden key seems eminently plausible. And it's unclear under what grounds Apple could refuse an, a legal order for something they could probably do. But that's all speculation for which there's no evidence. The issue arises, however, anytime any third party manages keying on behalf of its users. You know, that's the convenient way to do it, but it's less secure. The other piece of this announcement, which we'll apparently need to wait and see, is this means for somehow comparing and confirming what Apple calls this contact verification code, you know, like in person, on FaceTime, or through another secure call. So like, you know, you're, you're like reading it off of the screen to the other person. This, I'll call it the CVC, is presumably and hopefully a hash of the user's public key, which matches their private key, which is then converted into an ASCII code, so it's you know not just binary gibberish or hex. And note that this is exactly what my favorite messaging agent, Threema, which you mentioned earlier, Leo, has understood was important and has always done from the start. So that's all we know for now about iMessage contact key verification. I'm sure we'll talk about it again you know, next year once it's rolled out. Next up is the so-called security keys for Apple ID. Apple explains it by writing, Apple introduced two-factor authentication for Apple ID in 2015. Today, they say, with more than 95% of active iCloud accounts using this protection, that's nice to know, and that's a big number, it is most widely, it is the most widely used two-factor account security system in the world that we're aware of. And they broke their arm, patting themselves on the back. I should clarify that what we're talking about here is just the use of some other device to receive a six-digit code to authenticate a user. So, yeah, everybody has that. Um, okay, then they say... Although, Apple, I don't know if you've experienced it, does it nicely by showing you the location of the person asking for the code 
right. on a map, and then you say allow, and then it shows you the code. I mean, they've done a nice job of that, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. They're not texting you a, a six-digit <laughs> code on your right. SMS number. Right. So they said, now with security keys, users will have the choice to make use of third-party hardware security keys to enhance this Woo-hoo! protection. Yeah. This feature is designed for users who, often due to their public profile, face concerted threats to their online accounts, such as celebrities, journalists, and members of government. For users who opt in, Security Keys strengthens Apple's two-factor authentication by requiring a hardware security key as one of the two factors. This makes our two-factor authentication even further I'm sorry, takes our two-factor authentication even further, preventing even an advanced attacker from obtaining a user's second factor in a phishing scam. Woohoo! So That's the key, right? Because you can fish that six-digit number. But yes. you, you can't fish a YubiKey because nope. it's mine. <laughs> nope. Yeah. So we're getting hardware authentication dongles. That's good. And I imagine that Stina and the team over at Yubico is happy to see third-party hardware dongles becoming far more mainstream. They've offered um, uh, YubiKeys with Lightning for a long time. I have one that has Lightning yeah. on one and it's Type-C on the other. They also have our right. NFC YubiKeys that work. So, yeah. 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 So what I'm, what I'm wondering, Leo, is what stage of authentication? Is this unlocking your device? Or is this like when you, turn, when you need to like put in your passcode like after the first time you you turn it back on i would imagine i would guess it's that second you know you're not going to do it every time you unlock your device i mean maybe you could set that uh but it's whenever the two-factor pops up anyway right right um right but i i do wonder and you always you taught me this what's the fallback method because because the weakest link is always the fallback method you know so they might be great they say well you could use a yubi key or we'll text you a message and that wouldn't be quite as That's useful. Very good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll now have to learn about that. Encrypting the cloud. Most of the content of that first announcement page is glitz and self-congratulatory hype. The good news is that there's a second page available containing much more detail. But since it leaves out some of the broad strokes, we'll cover them here first. Okay, Ivan. Christic is that how you pronounce his name? K R S T I C. He's he's he needs some more vowels, just like ExpressVPN. <laughs> Ivan Christic, uh, who's Apple's head of security engineering and architecture, is quoted in this first broad overview, saying, "Advanced data protection is Apple's highest level of cloud data security, giving users the choice to protect the vast majority of their most sensitive iCloud data with end-to-end encryption so that it can only be decrypted on their trusted devices. For users who opt in, advanced data protection, which you'll hear me just abbreviating to ADP because they keep saying it over and over and over, keeps most iCloud data protection even in the case of a data breach in the cloud. Now, this is what's interesting. Um, For users who opt in, advanced data protection keeps most iCloud data protected even in the case of a data breach in the cloud. They're big on this data breach in the cloud here. I have some comments about that later. So, you know, they're, they're naturally not saying that this keeps their hands off of any of their users' data, which is, of course... 
the main reason everyone wants this, but rather they're saying it's to protect their users in the event of an iCloud security breach. Okay, fine, whatever, you know, as long as we can have it. They explain, and here's the interesting bit. They said iCloud already protects 14 sensitive data categories using end-to-end encryption by default, including passwords in iCloud keychain and health data. Okay, meaning that that Apple does not have access to that stuff, unlike, most famously, the iCloud backup. For users who enable advanced data protection, the total number of data categories protected using this end-to-end encryption rises from that 14 to 23, which then includes iCloud backup, notes, and photos, and more. The only major iCloud data categories that are not covered are iCloud mail, contacts, and calendar because of the need to interoperate with the global email, contacts, and calendar systems. But, you know, iCloud backup, that's the biggie, right? Remember that back in 2016, after the San Bernardino shootings, it was Saeed Farouk's phone whose iCloud backups, had they been available, and had the FBI not changed the password on the account, could have been decrypted by Apple to provide the FBI with the vital evidence that they say they needed at the time. So, you know, this was the big deal about iCloud backup. You know, it, we, we learned that under some situations, it could be made available. Yeah, Apple even said, but, yeah, see, we cooperated. All they had to do was go back to his house. Right. Okay, so just to, to wrap up the overview, Apple is expending some significant effort, in my opinion, to spin this mm. additional encryption as user protection in the event of a breach, presumably to deflect some of the government's and law enforcement's annoyance over more stuff being encrypted. Apple went out of their way to write. They said, enhanced security for users' data in the cloud is more urgently needed than ever before as demonstrated in a new summary of data breach research, quote, the rising threat to consumer data in the cloud, unquote, published today. Experts say the total number of data breaches more than tripled between 2013 and 2021, exposing 1.1 billion personal records across the globe in 2021 alone. Increasingly, companies across the technology industry are addressing this growing threat by implementing end-to-end encryption in their offerings. So, again, this is Apple saying, you know, we're doing this to protect our users from data breaches because that's a big problem. And, of course, the users want it because Apple has the keys. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the broad strokes. There is more good stuff in a, in a secondary document. Advanced data protection for iCloud, they write, is an optional setting that offers Apple's highest level of iCloud data security. When a user turns on advanced data protection, I'm going to now call it ADP, their trusted devices retain sole access to the encryption keys for the majority of their iCloud data thereby protecting it with end-to-end encryption. For users who who turn on ADP, 
The total number of data categories protected using end-to-end encryption rises from 14 to 23 and includes iCloud backup, photos, and notes, okay, and more, but that stuff all seriously encrypted. Conceptually, they said, ADP is simple. All CloudKit service keys that were generated on device and later uploaded to the what's called the available after authentication. You'll hear that phrase a couple times more to the available after authentication iCloud hardware security modules. So they have HSMs in Apple data centers. Get this. Okay, I'm going to back up again because this is important. All CloudKit security keys that were generated on device and later uploaded to the available after authentication iCloud hardware security modules in Apple data centers are deleted from those HSMs and instead kept entirely within the accounts iCloud keychain protection domain, which again, Apple has no access to. Apple does have access to that available after authentication iCloud hardware security modules where the keys have up until now or up until the user turns that on, that's where they've resided. So they were they were in hardware. They were protected as well as Apple could, but available after authentication. Now, not. They are deleted when the user turns that on, those keys are deleted from the HSMs that Apple had. They're handled, um, they, they uh, and they're moved into the iCloud keychain protection domain, meaning Apple can't get there. That stuff is sent down to the user for them to decrypt locally. They are not decrypted at Apple's end. They're handled like the existing end-to-end encrypted service keys, which means Apple can no longer read or access them. Okay, they wrote, ADP also automatically protects CloudKit fields that third-party developers choose to mark as encrypted and all CloudKit assets. When the user turns on advanced data protection, their trusted device performs two actions. First, it communicates the user's intent to turn on ADP to their other devices that participate in end-to-end encryption. It does so by writing a new value signed by device local keys into its iCloud keychain device metadata. Apple servers cannot remove or modify this attestation while it gets synchronized with the user's other devices. Second, the device initiates the removal of the available after authentication service keys from Apple data center. So that's what I was just talking about before. Now we're getting more into the detail. The device initiates the removal of the available after authentication service keys from Apple data centers. As these keys are protected by iCloud HSMs, this deletion is immediate, permanent, and irrevocable. After the keys are deleted, Apple can no longer access any of the data protected by the user's service keys. At this time, the device begins an asynchronous key rotation operation, which creates a new service key for each service whose key was previously available to Apple servers. 
If the key rotation fails due to network interruption or any other error, the device retries the key rotation until it succeeds. Okay, this is very cool and very serious. Apple is saying, since we once had those keys, we want all of those keys not only to be deleted, but then rotated out of service so that even though we've already deleted the keys, you're now using new keys that we have never seen and never had anywhere in our possession in an unencrypted form. Excellent. Yes. Yes, it is really serious. So they said, after the service key rotation is successful, new data written to the service cannot be decrypted with the old service key. Right, because, you know, key rotation means replacement. It's protected with the new key, which is controlled solely by the user's trusted devices and was never available to Apple, Mm. they wrote. Mm. So notice what's been quietly acknowledged here. This has nothing to do with breach protection anymore. This is all about Apple strongly selling the truth that they no longer have access to their users' iCloud device backups, photos, and notes. Wow. Okay. Then they say, when a user first turns on ADP, WebAC... Now, here's some interesting caveats because, you know, they've got some things that they needed that they... that They've got... they, They offer some things... That they have to have the keys for at their end if you want those things. Yeah, we've talked about that. The, the, there is a limitation to what you can do if you don't have access to the data. Right. They said when a user first ta- turns on ADP, web access to their data at iCloud.com is automatically turned off. Oh, that's a big one. This is because iCloud web servers no longer have access to the keys required to decrypt and display the user's data. Wow. The user can choose to turn on web access again and use the participation of their trusted device to access their encrypted iCloud data on the web. Oh. After turning on web access, the user must authorize the web sign-in on one of their trusted devices each time they visit iCloud.com. Good. The authorization arms the device for web access. For the next hour, this device accepts requests from specific Apple servers to upload individual service keys, but only those corresponding to an allow list of services normally accessible on iCloud.com. In other words, even after the user authorizes a web sign-in, a server request is unable to induce the user's device to upload a ser- upload service keys for data that isn't intended to be viewed on iCloud.com, you know, such as health data or passwords in iCloud Keychain. Apple servers request only the service keys needed to decrypt the specific data that the user is requesting to access on the web. Every time a service key is uploaded, it is encrypted using an ephemeral key bound to the web session that the user authorized. And a notification is displayed on the user's device showing the iCloud service whose data is temporarily being made available to Apple servers. Now, what this really means is if you really don't want Apple ever to have access, you have to stop using iCloud.com iCloud.com is a backdoor 
in, I mean, they've 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 done everything they can, all the due diligence possible. They've 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 proscribed their access. They've limited it. They've but if you're saying you want your data to be shown on a web page, that's got to come from our server. Right. So you have to give us transient access to that. And presumably, if they wanted to, they could cache that key. Right. So you're giving them right. a, a key again, and suddenly, yeah. So if you really want to right. be private, you wouldn't use the web. And given that turning ADP on forces a key rotation, maybe turning it off and back on again ah, would, re- would reinitialize yeah. those keys. Yeah. yeah. So they said ADP and iCloud.com web access settings can be modified only by the user. These values are stored in the user's iCloud keychain device metadata and can only be changed from one of the user's trusted devices. Apple servers cannot modify these settings on behalf of the user, nor can they roll them back to a previous configuration. Again, not about protection from data breaches. It's all obviously about Apple going well out of their way to demonstrate exactly how they no longer have access. Then they said, in most cases, when users share content to collaborate with each other, for example, with shared notes, shared reminders, shared folders in iCloud Drive or shared or iCloud shared photo library, and all the users have ADP turned on, Apple servers are used only to establish sharing but don't have access to the encryption keys for the shared data. Again, they've really done everything they could. So the blob the co- would go, an encrypted blob would go through Apple, but never be encrypt, unencrypted at Apple. Right. And then presumably the I'd have to share a key. That's part of the sharing. I'd have to share a key with the recipient. Right. So it would actually be, it wouldn't be the encrypted blob. It would be the, the, the key would get shared to the other device. And then the device would do the decryption of, of the, so the data is device to device shared. It's peer to peer. No, no, no. The, the keys. Right. The, but the the, data, so I have some data on my phone. I want to share with somebody else. Still going to go through Apple. It has to go through Apple. Exactly, because yeah. it, it comes from from your iCloud keychain that they don't have access to, right. to the other per, the other accounts iCloud keychain. So I have uh, my photos are on uh, Apple's iCloud. I want to share a, an album with Lisa. I would send her the key, and then she could get the data from Apple, encrypted as it is with Apple, download it, and un- unencrypt it locally. Yeah, right. that makes sense. Right. So they said the, the content remains end-to-end encrypted and accessible only to participants' trusted devices. For each sharing operation, a title and representative thumbnail may be stored by Apple with standard data protection to show a preview to the receiving users. Okay. Also, other little gotchas here. Like, this is why this, you know, they had to work to do this. Selecting the anyone with a link option when enabling collaboration will make the content available to Apple servers under standard data protection, as the servers need to be able to provide access to anyone who opens the URL. iWork collaboration and the shared albums feature in photos don't support advanced data protection, period. 
When users collaborate on an iWork document or open an iWork document from a shared folder in iCloud Drive, the encryption keys for the document are securely uploaded to iWork servers in Apple data centers. This is because real-time collaboration in iWork requires server-side mediation to coordinate document changes between participants. Photos added to shared albums are stored with standard data protection as the feature permits albums to be publicly shared on the web. Okay, so um, they also said, so, so those are the caveats. Basically, they've done everything possible. The typical user who isn't using iCloud.com and doesn't want to do like dynamic document and photo sharing, they're locked down tight when they turn this on. They said the user can turn off ADP at any time if they decide to do so. Two things. First, the user's device first records their new choice in iCloud keychain participation metadata. And this setting is securely synchronized to all their devices. Second, the user's device securely uploads the service keys for all available after authentication services to the iCloud HSMs in Apple data centers. In other words, you, you turn off ADP, here are the keys, Apple, that you're going to need to return to us to previous, this is the way we've always encrypted your stuff before, mode. And they said this never includes keys for services that are end-to-end encrypted under standard data protection, such as the iCloud keychain and health. They said the device uploads both the original service keys generated before ADP had been turned on and the new service keys that were generated after the user turned on the feature. This makes all data in these services accessible after authentication and returns the account to standard data protection where Apple can once again help the user recover most of their data should they lose access to their account. And now, this is really interesting. The requirements to turn on advanced data protection for iCloud include the following. In other words, what you have to do to get this on in the first place. And Leo, your mentioning of what happens if if you lose your YubiKey is what put me in mind of this because, again, Apple can't help you. So they said, the user's account must support end-to-end encryption. End-to-end encryption requires two-factor authentication for their Apple ID and a passcode or password set on their trusted devices. In other words, that 5% globally who don't have what they consider two-factor authentication, they can't turn on ADP. They've got a first set, you know, better security on their device. So that has to be there. Second, Devices where the user is signed in with their Apple ID must be updated to iOS 16.2, iPadOS 16.2, macOS 13.1, tvOS 16.2, watchOS 9.2, and the latest version of iCloud for Windows. This requirement prevents a previous version of iOS, iPadOS, macOS, tvOS, or watchOS from mishandling the newly created service keys by re-uploading them to the available after authentication HSMs 
in a misguided attempt to repair the account state, right? You wouldn't want, I mean, it used to be that all of these previous iOS versions were using, you know, if, if they if they couldn't access uh, something in the iCloud, they go, uh-oh, uh, Apple must have lost the keys, and it would send them again. Well, that's exactly what we don't want now. So you got to have the latest version of everything. Finally, the user must set up at least one alternative recovery method, one or more recovery contacts, or a recovery key, which they can use to recover their iCloud data if they lose access to their account. And, Leo, I have not had a chance to play with this. I didn't realize it was already there. So uh, we'll find out as we as we turn on ADP what this alternative recovery method one or more contacts, recovery key, and so forth is all about. Yeah, I, I, I think somebody said you should store the recovery keys in your password vault. So somebody's turned it on in our chat room, and they said that's what they did. Okay. So you might get, you know, you usually do get with these things, you know, five use once recovery keys, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you 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 want that when you when you've got a you know a no way out scenario. Yeah. Print it out and put it in your safe or something. Yeah. And they said if the recovery methods fail. Here it is. If the recovery methods fail, such as if the recovery the recovery contacts information is out of date or the user forgets them, Apple cannot help recover the user's end-to-end encrypted iCloud data. Period. Wow, good. They finished. Good. Yep. That if they said it, anything else, it wouldn't be good. Right. <laughs> Advanced uh, data protection for iCloud can be turned on only on only for Apple IDs, managed Apple IDs, and child accounts, which varies by country or region, are not supported. Hmm. So, I am officially one hundred percent impressed. You know, we heard what you need to hear, which was that if you lose your device or forget your password and are unable to authenticate, and none of the emergency recovery methods we made you set up. When you turned on advanced data protection available, after we made you jump through all those hoops and acknowledge that, you know, your firstborn might be up for sacrifice, (laughs) there is truly nothing we can do to help. You turned it on. We made you jump through hoops. You acknowledge the risks, and now it's on you. So, yay. You know, it sure took us a long time to get here, but we are here at last. Um, Everything that Apple is storing for us is encrypted in our devices before it ever leaves them. They're storing keys and keychains, but they cannot decrypt those keychains because that's the one ultimate key that's being held by the user's device. So Apple has finally been willing to move the rest of the keys that they were holding into the keychain to which only its users have access. Very good. Very, very good. Um, right? Can you see any yeah. holes in that? No. No. So, the only thing might be that um, Apple could say to the FBI, well, if the user logs into their iCloud.com, then we could get a snapshot. Right. But unless the but it's so in that sense, you know, they're they're having to in order not to lose the feature entirely, they're saying, Okay, well if you still want iCloud.com, we'll give it to you and we we double pinky swear that we're not gonna, you know, do anything with the data that we shouldn't. 
We've talked about but this before. It's why Dropbox and and OneDrive and Google Drive, none of them do this end-to-end encryption because you lose capabilities when you do it. And I think what Apple's done is actually kind of interesting. Actually, but, it's why I like Sync. Sync.com does have true end-to-end Fully encrypted, but then, they, then it's yep. hard for them to dedupe. I can't remember what all the features were, but there were features that you lose if they can't see yep. the data, right? Uh, chiefly yep. deduping, which is only for their benefit, so you don't, you know, waste their storage. Needlessly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think the ability to give them a temporary one-hour key so that you can look at the stuff, you just have to trust that yeah. they'll delete that key. Or, as you said, you could ro- yeah. rotate the keys. Uh, we should play with that and see how long it takes, for instance, to rotate the keys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it takes an hour, well, that's no good. If it's instant, no. then you could do that all I the think, time. I think it'll be instant. It should be, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is why you listen to the show. I don't need to say this, but I say it every week. This is the best stuff. And when I see stories like Apple is ending, adding end-to-end encryption, all I can think is, well, I can't wait to hear what Steve has to say about this. Well, now we know. Now we know. Uh, that's why we count on him. Mr. Gibson, you'll find him at grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Somebody was, uh, you mentioned this this uh, Apple light pen video that was going around. Uh-huh. Somebody posted it, uh, I can't remember where, probably on Mastodon, and said, that's not Steve Gibson, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's Steve Gibson. A long time ago. Uh, it's great. That's, uh, I guess, where GRC came from, the Gibson Research Corporation. These days, the research is mostly around Spinrite, getting your solid state or uh, hard drive back to normal, working fine. It is the world's finest mass storage recovery and maintenance utility. It's a good thing for maintenance as well. And he is working hard on 6.1, as you've probably heard. 6.0 is the current version. Don't be put off by the fact that it's been there since 2004. Bug-free since 2004. How about that? Bug-free. That's what we're trying trying to do on 6.1. Yeah. You will get a copy of 6.1 if you buy 6.0 right now. You also participate in the development. It's just a matter of, uh, well, I I won't make any promises for Steve, but it's just around the corner. How how shall we put that? By the end of next year, (laughs) for sure, (laughs) 6.1. No, I'm not even going to say that. (laughs) Poor Steve. He's, you know what? God bless you. You're just putting in the effort to make sure it's absolutely robust. You got a $40 all-in-one in the trunk of your car just so you can Actually, check it. While, while Lori was down last week with the flu, I worked 18 hours a day oh, on Spinrite. Because I couldn't get near her and we couldn't have any fun didn't or have do any, anything. So, didn't have anything else to do. So, yeah. And she was really worried. By like the end of the fifth day, she said, uh, are you okay? You're said, self-sufficient. You she should know yeah. that. Yeah, you spent most of your life self-sufficient. That's, that's true. It's the same thing. You have to balance a, a, a life-work balance. Uh, and it's not easy no. for us geeks because we get no. tunnel vision. And that's all we can think about. I'm looking at some code right now thinking, I could probably simplify that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, All you have to do is go to grc.com, pick up a copy of Spinrite. That's Steve's bread and butter. While you're there, take a look at all the other free things he offers, like Shields Up and on and on and on. Plus, of course, the podcast. He's got 16 kilobit audio versions. That's for people who really want a small download. He made that for Elaine Ferris, who is, you know, in a bandwidth-constrained environment. She downloads it and makes a human, beautifully written, crafted transcription. Somebody said the 900's not up yet, but it takes a few days. It takes a few days. So uh, as soon as it's done, it'll be up on the website there. 
Yep. He he also offers offers sixty four kilobit uh, versions for those who have ample bandwidth. Uh, go to the GRC site to get that uh, and lots of other great stuff. You can also leave feedback there at grc.com slash feedback. He's also a Twitterer. He's still on the Twitters at sggrc and his DMs are open. Talk about brave! So uh, you can leave him a message there at sggrc and he posts a, posts a link to the show notes there every week so that's another place you can get those those are good if you if you listen to the show so get the show notes they're either on his website or you can get them from store because that you could read along but it's got links it's got pictures uh the show notes are a really great resource that steve puts a lot of effort into it's basically his weekly column uh we do <laughs> i shouldn't now you look sad you look yeah i don't want to put you in you know it's good you're good you do good no i know how much work it work. is and you're right it is a weekly column it's a weekly column yeah but of how many thousands it's probably five thousand words if it's a if it's a penny yeah, this one is 23 pages it was a long one. holy cow look at that folks yeah uh we have copies of the show at our website twit.tv slash sn if you're a Club Twit member, you can get an ad-free version of the show, seven bucks a month, one buck less than a blue check on Twitter. What do you get? Ad-free versions of this and every other show. You get access to shows we don't put out anywhere else, like Hands on Macintosh with Micah Sargent, Hands on Windows with Paul Therott. We've got, uh, you know, uh, kind of fireside chats with people like Steve and our club. at the That's the Discord, which is wonderful. You also get, uh, uh, of course... Uh, the Discord access, which means you can chat with people. We're doing our code. We have a coding section in the Discord, and we're everybody's going crazy over the advent of code problems. It's been great. I I twice now gone in there going, guys, I don't understand. And they go, well, Leo, if you just uh, what you got to do is carry the framage and post it over there, and you're great. And I said, oh, thank you, uh, Cyface, who is our current champion. He's the fastest in there. He does them in minutes. Uh, and Tom Ribbons, thank you both for helping me out in there. See, being a member of the club's great. A lot of fun. We also have a yearly subscription if you want to give it as a gift. What a great holiday gift that would be for a geek in your life. Uh, and they're corporate subscriptions, too. Hey, you want to bonus your employees? Give them a, give them a Club Twit membership. They'd appreciate that. It's all available at twit.tv slash Club Twit. Uh, you can watch us do the show every Tuesday right after MacBreak Weekly. Uh, if Mac Break Weekly goes long, it might be a little late. It's supposed to be at one thirty Pacific, four thirty Eastern, twenty one thirty UTC. Live.twit.tv. There's a live audio or video stream. Then you can chat live in the Discord or on our free IRC server. We have a lot of open. You know, Steve, I've got to get in your forums. Everybody says, "Oh, you should be in the uh, Gibson's forums. They're great." So Steve has his own forums at grc.com. We have our Twit wide forums for all the shows at twit.community the mastodon instance which i am now uh, officially opening only to listeners so you gotta you gotta say in your i want to join don't say i want to join say something like steve sent me or leo, or leo sent me and then because I, I i don't want it to get too big i want it to be it's a community for listeners at twit.social so twit.community for the discourse forums twit.social for the Mastodon, uh, let's see, is that irc.twit.tv for the IRC? I think that's all. I think that's everything. After the fact, you can get the show on the website, twit.tv slash sn, as well as on Steve's website. There is a YouTube channel for Security Now, and uh, it's full-time YouTube uh, Security Now uh, shows all of them. And then, of course, uh, subscribing your favorite podcast player might be the easiest thing to do. Just subscribe, and you'll get it automatically. 
the minute it's available uh, at no at no cost. No salesman will call. Steve, have a wonderful. What are you reading these days? I'm <laughs> I'm on. Let's see, book seventy three of the yeah. <laughs> Silver Ship Saga. And I, I do agree with your criticism. I heard you talk about it on Sunday. That I mean, it is a, it's a, it's, it's a little not, Tom Swifty. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's okay. the like, hero. That's all. I, the only thing about the hero, he's so perfect. Yeah, he's just yeah. Oh, yeah. Alex. Yeah, Alex. Alex. Alex Racine. Yeah. As, as opposed to Jim Holden, who's who is like a real person. Yeah, or better yet, the de- detective Miller, who's really yes. kind of. Oh, Miller's got problems. Oh, but I tell you what, I just finished Leviathan Wakes of the Expanse Saga. And uh, you've been telling me, all the listeners have been telling me how great that is. It is really well written. I yeah, was surprised. I got a kick out of you saying, God, the, the the series is so long. I go, Leo, you haven't done a 75 book series yet. Wait <laughs> when Rick Brown's series goes to, uh, when the Frontier Saga goes to film, then you'll know. Steve, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful, we'll be, I should explain, we'll be back for one show before Christmas next week on the 20th. And then it's yes. a best of on the 27th. Nice. And then January 3rd. We're back on the 3rd. All new yep. shows for the all new year. Have a great week, Steve. We'll see you next time. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Don't miss All About Android every week. We talk about the latest news, hardware, apps, and now all the developer goodness happening in the Android ecosystem. I'm Jason Howell, also joined by Ron Richards, Florence Ion, and our newest co-host on the panel, Wen Tu Dao, who brings her developer chops. Really great stuff. We also invite people from all over the Android ecosystem to talk about this mobile platform we love so much. Join us every Tuesday, All About Android, on twit.tv. Security now.